This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man. Today's pretty unique. It's going to be an episode where I am getting interviewed by a guy named Pete McCall. He owns his own fitness business and he has a podcast called Pete McCall's Podcast. And he brings me on and he is not a hunter. He's not anti-hunter. He's into fitness. We have a very similar fitness background as far as education and experience. And somehow he got my name and became intrigued on the elk hunting side of things and wanted to know my take on fitness and hunting. Hunting. I was pretty pumped to do it because I know his audience is largely filled with people that are maybe not anti-hunter but non-hunter. So I wanted to use this platform to educate people on why I feel hunting is an important part of what we do and an important part to conservation. I did my best to explain the hunting process and the why behind it. And I just wanted to drop it on this podcast as well so you guys could hear me trying to explain why I'm so passionate about elk hunting and CrossFit and fitness in general. Maybe you'll learn something along the way. I tried to paint a bright picture as to why hunting is conservation. It is in our DNA, and it's something that uh, shouldn't go away. In fact, I want to promote hunting. I want my son to hunt, my daughter to hunt. I want hunting to live on, and it's a very big part of my life and who I am and probably who you guys are as well. So take a listen. If you want to support the podcast, go to elkshape.com. Check out our website, and we got free workouts posted as well as a swag store so you can support the cast that way you can check out my partners and thanks for listening and go make it happen for yourself i'm pete mccall today with dan state is it staten or staten i should have asked that before we started recording yeah you had it right staten staten and you do uh, what do you do dan you're up in uh, the eastern washington and you're known for elk fit and you have a studio and, and a hunter and give us a little bit of background about what you do yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I'm looking forward to chatting with you and getting to know you. Um, I'm up in Spokane, Washington. I've uh, been in the fitness industry for probably 15 plus years. Um, I have a wife and a family and a young family. 
We uh, we own a CrossFit gym. It's called CrossFit Spokane Valley. Just kind of more of the functional fitness things that we do inside those four walls. And we're on year number 10. Probably known in many circles as a pretty get-after-it elk hunter with archery. So I'm a passionate bow hunter. I also run a website called elkshape.com. And that's just more of a lifestyle brand of pursuing hunting with archery and procuring your own meat and getting that wild organic meat back home and how to prepare for that year round and being ready to try to tackle the mountains. And, um, yeah, it keeps me all, all of that keeps me pretty busy. Well, what got, what got you into fitness originally? Because if you've owned your CrossFit studio 10 years, you're, it sounds like you're in that, that kind of that first wave of early adopters. What, how'd you get started in CrossFit and, and what's your kind of impetus for getting started in fitness? Sure. Um, so I became a personal trainer outside of high school just to put myself through college. Uh, did that for several years and was able to pay for a, my college cash, which was awesome. So I got an undergraduate degree in exercise science, and then I went on to get a master's degree in exercise physiology. Along that journey, I got some incredible internships with like uh, athletes' performance. I'm not sure if it's even called that anymore, but I know Mark Verstegen is still relevant and worked under his mentorship. And then I also helped open a Parisi Speed School on the East Coast in Boise, Idaho. And I've managed health clubs from the fitness department. So Gold's Gym, 24-Hour Fitness, a couple other boxes. And so I've been exposed to the commercial fitness and performance training, working with pro athletes. And got the CrossFit bug in 2007 and made my way back home and opened my own box right there. And I've been doing that ever since. Well, Dan, that to me, I mean, just just that little brief resume. And for listeners, Athletes Performance, which is now known as Exos, they they they, they bought a commercial or a, like a um, a corporate fitness center a couple of years ago, and they changed the name to Exos to be more applicable to everybody. But AP and Mark, you know, for Stegen, are they're probably the top name in in performance conditioning. So to kind of say, oh yeah, I worked with them a little bit. Where'd you work with them? Did you do were you in uh, Tempe or were you in LA? Where'd you work with them? Yeah, so I was in Tempe. Mark is from well I think his wife's actually from her name's Amy. They're actually from Spokane. So there's my connection. I knew um Amy's brother Johnny and I was just this young whippersnapper in two thousand five and I was like, hey uh Johnny, I need to intern for an internship for my master's degree. Do you think I could get in there? And he said, let me talk to my sister. And um, I got connected over there and dropped everything. I was um, managing and making good money as a fitness manager. And I dropped everything and just went down to live in Tempe. Actually, technically it was Scottsdale, but I lived in, I worked in Tempe at, under the tutelage of Mark and all his awesome coaches. And I haven't kept track of all the coaches that were there, but uh, I know like one of them is now the strength and conditioning coach for the Broncos. His name was Luke uh, Richardson, I believe. And uh, I worked with him mostly and it was incredible. Totally changed the way I thought about training. And uh, like Kurt Schilling was there, a bunch of 2005 MLB guys, Kevin Euclid, uh, and then a lot of pro, uh, like top NFL draft guys getting ready for the combine were there. So it was pretty cool because it, like mornings was we were working with the combine guys getting them ready, uh, and that's like their biggest debut resume builder. I mean, they are working for the biggest job interview in their life, and these guys are worth millions, and their agents are there, and we're talking a world class facility. And then in the afternoon, we got our MLB guys that they're there for the off season. 
I mean, my mind was blown. I was so humbled. I learned so much, and it was invaluable. What a world-class training facility. It was on Arizona State University campus. I mean, these athletes came in, and all their meals were made for them by a chef on site, all their recovery shakes. Uh, There was blood work, biometrics taken on everybody from the beginning, Uh, and then there was uh, on-site massage and physio or physical therapy, and then there was all of us coaches and interns. It was crazy. It was awesome. And, and for listeners, this is this was you said 2005, and, and Mark was one of the first guys that really put high performance conditioning on the map. He worked with guys like Nomar. He worked with he helped get a bunch of guys ready, as you mentioned, for the draft and everything. And what Mark was known for was creating systems. And he really is, you know, if you say Verstegen, if you say even AP athletes' performance today, any every you know anybody who who knows anything about conditioning immediately recognizes those names. How important was it for you to be exposed to those systems? Because Mark is a systems guy. It's all about we have a system, we have a process, and we're just going to put an athlete into the system and let the system take care of the athlete. How did that influence kind of what you're doing today and where you are today? I mean, it changed everything. So um, they put a lot of literature in my hands. I mean, I met Greg Cook and functional movement screen, learned that in 2005. I mean, that was such a good time to learn that. And uh, that was a, a tool, if you don't know, you obviously do, but a way to kind of expose your areas of opportunity where you could potentially get injured. And he was all about decreasing injury potential and maximizing efficiency and efficacy. It was awesome. I mean, so I still do a lot of his um, dynamic warm-up stuff today and some of his recovery things. It's all evolved so much in the last 10 years. It's been really exciting. And I'm just happy that I have that little part of my journey with Verstegen because beyond him being really intelligent, I got to tell you, probably one of the best leaders I've ever seen because he leads by example. He's the first one to pick up a piece of trash. He's the last one to help clean. You know, he had an army of interns and he could have been like, hey, guys, go clean the toilets. You know, he would be the first one to do it. And as an intern, you're like, no, 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 that's my job. And uh, I just learned a lot from that guy and the way he carried himself. And that, that's so that's, that's so cool to hear, man. And, and it's, sorry, just, that's such a cool you know it's a cool thread to go on because he really has created that. They have an Exos. I live in Encinitas in North County, San Diego, and there's one not not far from me. And I'm in there once in a while. And the one thing that always that 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 blows me away that I love about that facility is every time I go in there, all the bars are at the same height on the Olympic racks. All the dumbbells are facing the same way. Everything is just you know dialed in and and you're right it's because mark mark carries that so you have this strength and conditioning background but you said you grew up as a hunter so when did you start to kind of combine the two you know where you started thinking about how you do conditioning for for what you enjoy doing with hunting i mean i cut my teeth on the early days with um elk hunting so uh right out of high school i told my dad because my dad obviously was my person who took me hunting most people just don't go hunt without a mentor it's just kind of a I don't know, the barrier to entry, I would say, is difficult because, you know, there's a lot to know. And if you don't have someone taking you. So my dad took me as a kid and exposed me to being outside and and all the cool things about hunting that there are and the ethics and the why behind what we were doing. And so he planted a seed early on when I was like 10, 11, 12. And then when you get into high school, you don't really have time in the fall. That's when most hunting seasons are. You're playing sports. You're playing football. So when I graduated high school and decided not to pursue baseball, I stayed home, got a job as a personal trainer, and I just got the itch. I'm like, Dad, I really want to try elk hunting. 
do you want to go? And he's like, well, he's a deer hunter. And he's like, we can go try. Long story short, we got an elk with a rifle. I shot a bull. Uh, a bull is a male. I couldn't believe how much meat we got off that elk. I fed our entire family for a year off elk meat. And I grew up on deer meat. And there's quite a difference in taste and texture when you're looking at a six, seven, 800 pound elk versus 150, 200 pound deer. Obviously the rack is pretty big. The body's big. They, they're amazing animals. So I got exposed to the, the main driver, which was, oh my goodness, we can fill up an entire freezer, freezer and this is lean meat, organic, quote unquote, grass fed that has no <laughs> antibiotics. No, you know, it's just it, the way I think Mother Nature intended us to consume lean protein sources from animals. And I was hooked. In hunting, archery gives you a cooler season. Uh, you get to hunt elk in September, which is known as the rut when the elk, the male, bugle. And if you've never heard of elk bugle in the wild, most people haven't. It will Your hair will rise on your neck. It is one of the coolest sounds ever to be a part of that. And so I got a bow and just dedicated myself to the discipline it takes to be a proficient archer because that's what you want as a hunter. You want a quick, humane kill, uh, and, and archery is unbelievable way to make that happen. And so I started archery elk hunting, and I didn't have success for four years. And I, I went to Idaho where it's really steep, really deep, really thick, and I couldn't believe the physical component to hunting. And the more physically fit I was the further I could go with all my gear on my back. I could stay in the mountains. And, I mean, Pete, I was scared, you know. You, how many people are actually ever go backpacking deep into the wilderness by themselves and sleep overnight and try to go get their groceries for the year? It's definitely something I think that's in our DNA, and, and it changed who I am. And so from that point forward, I put everything into it and have experienced some success. And uh, our family, we live off elk meat. And and I, I listen to this, Dan, and it really it intrigues me. You're right, and I, I totally understand the primal thing. And you have to understand, I grew up by the other Washington. I grew up about a mile and a half outside of Washington D.C. And and my parents, I think the wildest they ever. I don't know. They they were not uh, nature people by any stretch of the imagination. You know, going to the state park an hour and a half outside of D.C. was about my my exposure to <laughs> to wilderness growing up. So I have a lot of respect for people doing that. And I just I didn't grow up in the hunting and culture, and it's something I'd be interested in learning. But And I really like the way you said you need a mentor. I just don't know people in my immediate circle that do hunting, and especially with bow hunting, because I can see, you know, if somebody into fitness is somebody that likes doing stuff, to me, bow hunting seems like much more of a natural challenge, right? You know, it's like when you lift a kettlebell or you lift a barbell, it's you against that piece of iron. And I could totally see how, you know, going out in the woods, especially if you're going packing by yourself for a few days that just elevates that that innate competition right you're it's just you against the natural elements so what do you think and, and i'm asking this question with with the utmost respect what do you think the misconception is that a lot of people like me who just didn't grow up around hunting what do you think the misconception is that a lot of people have about hunters people don't think there's a need for hunting from the outside looking in like why do you need to go hunt you can just go to the grocery store uh but what you don't realize is a couple reasons why I hunt is one, when you cut that check or swipe that debit card at the grocery store, you just killed an animal. You just did it with your checkbook. And there's blood on your hands when you eat meat from the store, whether you like to admit it or not. Now, where did that meat come from? It could be factory farmed. I mean, you could find a local grower, but 
Chances are it's not as organic. Chances are you didn't almost uh, kill yourself getting all that meat out of the mountain. So to me, it's a very organic process to go and get that meat for your family. And I don't think people that are that are anti-hunters want to hear that. They don't like that argument. And there's people that aren't really anti-hunting. They're kind of indifferent. And those are the people that I want to talk to. Because they don't have really an emotional response like, say, anti-hunters do, where something's dying and they're upset. I think we all can agree that, you know, for in order for us to eat, something has to die. And for me, I want the blood on my hands. And I want to know that I got the most lean, organic meat that's going to be healthy for my family. And I am in love with elk meat. Another reason people don't probably think we need to hunt is because they think that the animals are just there naturally and they'll be fine on their own, which couldn't be further from the truth. Hunting dollars, uh, it's expensive to hunt. You have to get a license through your state. Each state manages their wildlife. So every state is entrusted by the federal government and they hold those animals in trust. So they're responsible for those animals. That deer, that elk is your deer. Pete, that's my deer. That's all our deer. That's all our animals together. They are managing these animals with wildlife biologists who do flyover studies, wildlife biologists who have boots on the ground, making sure that you know habitat isn't infringed with development and that these animals have wild places to roam. Without hunting dollars, there's just no budget for them to pay for game wardens who are people that manage hunters and make sure they're abiding by the laws, wildlife biologists, agencies, and it's unbelievable amount of money that hunters, and, and we tax ourselves from the Pittman-Robinson Act. Over 50 years ago, hunters said, yeah, you know what, tax us and use that money to help preserve wildlife. And so every firearm or ammunition that is purchased or bow, archery, there's an additional tax on there that goes towards funding wildlife, plus the hunting licenses and tags. And so a lot of people that don't understand, hunters are conservationists, and they do want the animals to live on. And when you put a value on an animal, it'll be around. And so we want to ensure that all these animals are here, and we want to manage their populations. And rather than animals getting overpopulated or infringed upon, we as hunters can selectively harvest a fraction of them each year and keep those herds healthy and strong and have meat for us. It's a win-win. Uh, you broke that down so well, Dan, and I and I would definitely categorize myself in the indifferent. I just it's one of those things I've never been exposed to, and I've always been interested in it. And I, I shared with you before we started recording that that my wife grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and her immediate family didn't really do much in the outdoors, but one of her uncles did. It was actually her aunt's husband by marriage, but. And so I've talked to him about it, but I haven't been up there during the season. He took me out fishing one time, and I forget how much I had to pay for just a one-day license and one tag to get a salmon, but it was very expensive. And he kind of explained to me exactly like you did, that that's the way that they kind of manage it. And it really, what you just said there in terms of if I if I shop and buy for something in the store, I'm killing something anyway. And I don't know if you've ever driven by an industrial cattle farm. They have a couple of uh, couple of them along the I-5 here in California. Dude, you smell that thing 15 minutes before you hit it visually. Yeah. And to me, it just seems like being having the skill, having the ability to go out and and you know track an animal, find an animal, kill an animal, and then the most importantly, dress or, or break down the animal and and carry out the meat. To me, that just seems like something that that 
people should learn how to do it. We should have an opportunity to do it. So I'm kind of jealous for people that have been exposed to that. And I, and I do think that when people see some of these, for lack of a better term, douche nozzles that are, <laughs> that are killing wild animals in like Africa or they're going places and killing these big game animals, I, I think that just gives you guys a bad rap because there are plenty, I'm sure there are tens of thousands of guys like you, men and women like you, who go out and hunt for the right reasons as opposed to going out and just getting in a trophy. How does that make you feel when you see something like that, where it gets, you know, somebody's in the news or that you see somebody have, have gone somewhere. Maybe they went to a managed place where the animals are kind of penned in from what I've read. And I might be wrong about that. Uh, how's that make you feel as a hunter? Well, man, I can tell you that most hunters I know, and I know a lot of them, I've been in the hunting industry for 15 years as well, is that they're hardworking, blue-collared guys that get a limited amount of days in the field, and they bust their ass to go on public land and get an opportunity and an animal. And then you have a few bad apples that maybe hunt off of a four-wheeler, shoot off of a four-wheeler, or take more game than they're supposed to. Or you have predominantly extremely wealthy people that basically go to high fence, is what we call them, pen hunts, where they're canned. The opportunity is the outcome is already known. You're going to kill this animal, and it's not wild. It's not fair chase. It's not what most hunters are about. It's not even close. And so, to me, yeah, those those guys are gals. Are they give us the black eye, you know? And and I don't agree with it. I think that hunting should be hunting. And you know, when somebody pays to go hunt an animal that is basically high fenced. I have no issue with it as far as I know that they're spending a ridiculous amount of money. That money's going to be put to good use. But, like, don't say you killed this thing and, and make it an ego thing. Just tell us the truth. Tell us that this was a fenced hunt. This is the animal that I killed. I'm taking it home and I'm eating it. That's cool. You know, there's a few people that will make it, you know, look like they're just going to kill for the trophy. They don't care. They're indifferent about the meat. They maybe don't even take the meat. I got pretty big issue with that you eat what you kill period yeah there's always going to be a few bad apples and the word trophy to me makes me cringe all animals are trophies and every hunter's proud of the animal that they have killed and they also uh, have reverence for the animal's life and the most respect hunters care more about these animals than i would say people that are indifferent or even anti-hunters we're out there in the wilderness we see where these animals live. We go to where they call home, and they are intelligent, smart. They have awesome senses. I can tell you that it's not like a happy dance after you kill an animal. You may be excited, but there's always a moment to pause and pay your respects and thank God and thank the animal for its life and that it's going to feed your family. And see, I'm, I'm, I'm so stoked to be having this conversation with you, Dan, because that's, you know, this is the type of thing I, I think just in general, people need to understand about what guys like you do and that, that you hear it in your voice and you can hear the passion and you hear the reverence that you have. And I do, you know, I would much rather, you know, I, at some point I need to figure out how I can learn how to do this. And I don't know how much, you know, there is to hunt here in, uh, in San Diego. I live in North San Diego County. You have, when I've been mountain biking and I don't go too far in the back wilderness, um, but I've been mountain biking. I've seen coyotes. I've seen deer, and so I know. And, and I know there's a big uh, wild pig population at one part of the, of, of the county. But it's just one of those things where I would love to learn how to do it. And I've told my wife if she ever wants to move back to Alaska, the one thing I want to be able to do is, is learn how to hunt because I do. 
think it would be i just think that whole experience of, of tracking an animal and doing it and having the fitness to go in and, and go out and my it's actually funny you say the the, the biologist my sister-in-law is a fisheries biologist for NOAA up in uh, up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. She helps ma- she helps manage the salmon um, the salmon fisheries up there, and so that's that's her job is to kind of she helps track you know track how many salmon people catch. She she does all that, and there's a lot of management that goes into that. And so it's interesting to hear from that perspective. Now, how'd you get started with bow hunting, and, and why bow hunting as opposed to rifle hunting? So, like I was saying, I killed my first elk when I was 20 with a rifle. And that was in October, late, late October. And archery usually gets the only season in September when the elk are actually bugling and they're mating and they're going crazy. It's an unbelievable experience. So if if you really want to see more elk and have more opportunity, you got to pick up a bow. There is a difference between a rifle and a bow. I have respect for both. But when you're hunting elk and you see an elk 200 yards away and you have a rifle, the hunt's just about over. If you see an elk and you're 200 yards away with a bow, the hunt has just began. You need to get yourself between 20 and 50 yards to make a good, clean, ethical shot. So it's just a tremendous challenge. And with a rifle, most guys can pick up the rifle right before season and be ready to go. And in my experience, I have to shoot my bow every day of the year to, to be really proficient and confident, accurate, and that's really important. And so now it's a way of life. Now it's something that's it's just what I do. And so every day I wake up and I walk out my back deck and I shoot a half a dozen arrows at the minimum just to keep that muscle memory and that discipline and that confidence. And that plays into my life with other things like fitness and nutrition, working out, when I don't feel like it, shooting my bow when I don't feel like it, eating clean when I don't feel like it. So it just builds discipline upon discipline. And as you know, as a fitness guy, discipline is the, the common denominator to, to getting to where you want to be in life. And the, Is it meditative? Is it kind of like a meditation to go out? Because I've only shot bows a few times and in, in primarily a, like a camp, but at one or two other places, you know, I hate to say this, but county fairs mm-hmm. where you can go up and do it. And I like the physical challenge of it. I can totally see, um, I get it. You know, I get it. Just, I've used it one, you know, enough that I'm like, okay, this is something like a lot of things that if, if I do it anymore, I'll probably get addicted to it and, you know, want to do more of it. But do you find yourself, if you do it in the morning, is it kind of like a meditation process for you? A hundred percent. Uh, it's your Zen moment. It's, uh, you need to clear your mind. Nothing else needs to go on. It's just you and the mythical flight of the arrow. It's exciting. It'll calm your nerves, and if you have a troubled mind, go pick up a bow and go shoot a few arrows. It'll reset everything. That's so. That's an interesting thing to hear. What was? What would you consider the best shot? Like, what was your? And I'm not asking this in a way to um, disrespect the animal that you may may have taken down, but more of just like, what was the one moment that you're like, man, that was just that you kind of surprised yourself with being able to get the shot. Well, if you do a shot execution properly, your conscious is out of it. And so most of my archery harvests have come from a subconscious standpoint where I don't almost even remember how it happened or letting the arrow go. The muscle memory took over and I kept my conscious out of it, which is what you need to do to be accurate. You can't tell a bow when to be shot. You need to just focus on aiming and let the muscle memory execute the shot for you. So 
hopefully when you do get an opportunity, which is basically what you work for and when you're archery hunting is you're working your ass off just to get a shot opportunity because it is challenging to get close and you are close. And I feel like it's very fair to the animal too. But yeah, that- yeah, I, I kind of like that because yeah, non-hunters will, will say, well, what about the animals being armed? And I think people don't realize that it, for what the type of stuff that you're talking about. It, and again, I'm sure there's a strong majority of hunters out there that if they listen to this are not along. But I think there's, I, I do like the fact that if you're tracking an animal, you, you, it's not easy. You know, it's not an easy thing. And I don't want it to be easy. I want it to be a challenge. I want to be tested. And I want to go against Mother Nature one-on-one. But, yeah, when you're shooting at an animal, it needs to be a subconscious deal that um, just basically your muscle memory takes over. That's why you have to practice year-round and be proficient, which is why I love it. And it builds discipline and just makes you a better person, in my opinion. And the animals are insanely difficult. They want to live. There's no animal out there that doesn't want to live. And God built them so that they can see, they can hear, they have tremendous amount of smell so the wind and what which way the wind blowing and carrying your scent is critical they have an, uh you know you're not hunting them in this in your backyard you're going to their backyard there you're they have home field advantage they live up there they know where to go they know where to have the wind uh it's not easy it's not a slam dunk and uh, that's why we love it and that's and that, that's so cool to hear you can hear the fact i can hear it in your voice dan that it really is this is your, you're an athlete. If you said you're, you're playing, grew up playing sports, this is, I can totally hear this become a sport. So let's take a little shift now. And with your fitness program, you say hunting season's in September, you know, so do you periodize your workouts and, and periodize for listeners means you schedule your workouts in intensity in order to peak and be in peak fitness for like a competition season. So like the NFL guys would be in shape. They'd peak that they didn't want to peak their fitness before the start of NFL season. Do you periodize your fitness plans for, for your hunting season? So a lot of times I'll tell people that I'm mountain ready 365. And I do that through cross training, doing functional fitness, high intensity workouts. You can tell, I don't want to say the C word, but you know, I do a lot of just broad functional fitness And that prepares me really well. But I do periodize one component, and that's hiking with a backpack on. There is literally zero substitute for humping the hills with 30 to 50 pounds on your back with your boots on. So those miles get periodized for certain. And we ramp it up starting around May and just build towards August, adding miles and adding elevation and doing some interval pieces and some long, slow distance pieces. And then couple that with just the strength and conditioning of, say, a quote-unquote CrossFit program to keep the soft tissue strong, keep the bone density strong, decrease your injury potential, and, and, and have the ability to uh, persevere through mentally daunting workouts like functional fitness workouts do. They make you mentally tougher. You add all that in, and, and it's a perfect marriage. And I think that's cool. And I'm one of these people where I've, I've kind of played with CrossFit a little bit. I've never done it consistently. You know, when I first saw a, a buddy of mine, uh, Tom Bros, um, started CrossFit DC back in 2005. And I went and did, you know, tried a couple of these quote unquote new workouts. I'm like, oh, okay, you're doing high intensity. You're doing power training. That's not really that unique. It just was nobody ever packaged it in that way before. And, and I think it kind of caught so many people off guard. And, and the thing is, man, we know this, that, you know, 
a lot of the reason why I think so many people love CrossFit is because they were working much harder than they were used to. Yeah. You know, usually if you, up until like 07, 08, people would go to the gym. You said you worked at 24 goals. They'd go to the gym, you know, maybe do some cardio. Maybe they lift a couple machines or a couple benches or whatever. And they didn't push themselves. So how does that how does that carry over? I mean, is that kind of the fun thing about high intensity? And what's the generic term? It's like high intensity variable training. You know, is that the fun thing about it? Kind of pushing yourself and challenging yourself? Yeah, you definitely get your money's worth. You get a lot of bang for your buck. Uh, keep in mind, I was the biggest critic of CrossFit when it when I first got exposed to it because I had just got out of AP with uh, Verstegen, and I thought it was foolish. I thought it was going to get people hurt. How I kind of shifted my perspective was when I was in Boise, Idaho, I was running this Parisi Speed School for youth athletes, ages like, oh, six years up to collegiate athletes. And as you guys know, kids are in school during the day and we needed a revenue stream. So I'm like, I'm going to build an advanced adult fitness class. And I started making up some workouts and some circuits. And lo and behold, I went to the CrossFit.com and started looking at some of their workouts for the adults. Well, as a coach, you don't put people through workouts that you don't try yourself. So I started dabbling in with some of these CrossFit workouts and I got hooked. Probably because it was, like you said, packaged in a way I'd never seen. Some of the volume was stuff I hadn't considered. And uh, I started really digging in on the CrossFit methodology and the founder, Glassman, wrote some pretty cool pieces that kind of put a lot of stuff that I believed up on its head. And I'm a guy that's, you know, I'm very open-minded. I'm going to read from everybody and take what I think works for me. And I did that. And next thing you knew, I was all in on CrossFit, went and got CrossFit, quote-unquote, level one certified or went to their seminar. I, I didn't stay in Boise much longer. I moved back home and opened my own CrossFit. So it did change me quite a bit. And uh, I guess that's just my side tangent. But But what it does is it's a place where you're no longer headphones in, working out by yourself. You're now suffering, and there is suffering, alongside trustworthy peers. And for whatever reason, that friendly camaraderie and competition just squeezed a little bit more out of me. And I felt like I put a little more effort into the workouts and got a lot more out of it. And, uh, and as far as time economy goes, I didn't have to spend two hours through segmented training and just doing strength piece and then doing conditioning, I kind of blurred the distinctions between the two and got what I needed in a shorter amount of time. And so I experienced some, some great results. Like any program, there are chinks in CrossFit's armor that we try to address, but uh, there's no one-size-fits-all program. I understand that. But there are some good principles that we employ, and, and it's definitely helped me in the, in the mountains as far as mental capacity and physical capacity. And that's my approach to any anything with fitness is anything is going to work. And it's never – I never look at, at the fitness tool or the system. It's just how is it applied? I mean I've known some coaches that have done some fabulous things. And from what I've seen – and you definitely fall into this category. From what I've seen is people that were involved in fitness first and they had a good background and you obviously had your master's degree. You had exposure from, from the, the best in the industry. So you understood how to scale CrossFit to fit anybody – and I think where it sometimes gets a bad name is for people that that's the only thing they know. If they were introduced to CrossFit and that's the only way they train and they don't know how to blend in you know, other things, they don't know about movement screen, they don't know about movement training, it's either just go hard or go home. 
And I think that's, you know, that, that's just, you know, what I've seen with it. Cause I'm, I'm overall, I'm a big fan. So now, and one of the, one of the things that, that I try to do a lot with this, with this program, Dan, is, is talk a little bit about recovery. You know, recovery plays a big role in fitness. And so how do you, especially, you know, none of us are getting any younger. <laughs> how have you sort of, how do you incorporate recovery and what's kind of like your go-to approach for recovery when you're training really hard? Yeah, so when I was at Athletes Performance, they called Recovery Regeneration Day, which I'd never been exposed to. I thought you just took the day off from exercise and you become back stronger. Well, you need to be a little more intentional or deliberate about how you recover. So I still like that regeneration philosophy. And uh, down there, we did really specific heart rate training. So obviously, there was target heart rate training at a specific intensity and uh you know, things like that. So I still believe in what I would call a flush where you can do some low intensity, longer pieces to get your body flushed out um, and get everything, all the metabolic garbage to, you know, get the garbage truck to pick it up and get it out of there and generate some blood flow. I still believe in active isolated stretching, which is working through some range of motions, almost like PNF stretching, but really layman's term, just working through some range of motions with the assistance of some like rope or banded work. I also like some of the Kelly Starrett stuff. He came in with like the mobility, getting doing some banded distraction. I'm using some big words, but just basically using um, some tools to help work through some range of motions at the hip and shoulder and finding your areas that are overworked and making sure that you're approaching it. Um, a lot of stuff I learned from National Academy of Sports Medicine back in the day of there are areas that get overworked, there are areas that are the opposite, that get underworked. So making sure that you're paying attention to that. You know, crossover symmetry is one of the biggest pieces we use for the shoulders, and that's just making all the muscles between the shoulder blades stronger so you can have better posture, get your scaps closer to the spine and down, and uh, working the hip, making sure that it's opened up because, you know, a lot of us sit all day and tighten up that hip. So working the hip capsule, working the shoulder capsule, and, and doing your injury prevention exercises and working on your core, all that can be done in a recovery day. So that's generally my approach is like a three days on, one day off. That day off is not necessarily just not doing anything. It's more of a flush and then some specific target towards the hip and shoulder, working the midline core and doing some injury prevention exercises for the shoulders and the spine and things like that. And I think that's because people want to realize that you can actually exercise as a way to help avoid getting injuries. And what what type of injuries do hunters you know do hunters have? Whether bow or rifle, I mean, is there a consistent pattern, or is it kind of just one of those things where a freak accident might might occur? Well, I think like most Americans, the lower back is pretty susceptible for injury, especially when you're backpacking. The hips can get real tight. Hopefully, you have no feet problems because if everything starts from the ground up, so making sure you have a good boot and that you take care of your feet. You know, plantar fasciitis is a pain to work through. Hammer toes. If you have an aroma on your foot, those things are going to cause trouble. But at the hips, I mean, your hips are working all the time. If your backpack's fitted correctly, a lot of the load is at the hips. Uh, your lower back can take a toll, so having a strong core. And then as an archer, everything starts and ends with the shoulders, so making sure that your shoulders are bulletproof uh, and ready to go. And uh, watching out for overuse 
uh, use overuse injuries, you know, especially if your career or your job has you doing things. I mean, a lot of people's occupations have them doing repetitive movements or you're slouched over a keyboard, paying attention to posture. So that's stuff that hunters look out for is kind of just those main things. But I think most Americans struggle with lower back pain, having a weak core, being out of alignment, things like that. It, what kind of what kind of shoulder? I was wondering that going through your site a little bit and kind of looking at specificity, you know, training for specifically how to use your body. Do you have any type of favorite shoulder exercises that you do to prep uh, to prep what you do for holding a bow? Well, I got introduced to crossover symmetry a couple years ago, and I, I kind of run through their whole chart of recovery shoulder work. They have some other things in there, but if you just take the time to look up crossover symmetry there's some great youtube videos out there i've made a few youtube videos on my channel it's called elk shape just to kind of showcase things you can do for the shoulders and i could even take it back to mark for days where we did shoulder prehab work with just your basic y's t's l's and w's and i know people can look those up and find those movements real quick but even the basic most fundamental things are going to help you out well, that's the one thing that always kills me, right? Is that when you when you look at exercise, when you look at, at weightlifting, there are only you know a relatively limited number of basic patterns, and it, you don't need to overcomplicate it. I think there's a lot of tendency for people to try to overcomplicate fitness or overcomplicate exercise to try to stand out. And I'm a huge fan of Dan John, who I've had on the podcast, who's just like you know do basic stuff and do it well. Mm. And that kind of comes down to Mark's Mark's thing too is. If you do the basics and execute them well and know how to alternate between periods of high and low intensity, you don't need to be over creative. You don't need to do anything uh, too silly. And when you kind of, so to switch gears a little bit, when it comes to hiking, what's, how long would you hike? I mean, if you're going on a hunt and, and do you go for multiple, it sounds like you go for multiple days. What's like a distance, a normal distance in one of your hikes where you're going out on a hunt? I actually have a, I've tracked this just so I can kind of have speak f- from f- facts is I wouldn't say an average day because I don't. I'm, there is no such thing as an average day when you're elk hunting. Is you're up early before light and you're hiking to where you think the elk are going to be. So that could be gaining thousands of vertical feet in the dark with a headlamp on and uh, getting to where you need to be and your backpack's loaded. And then you're hunting literally all day trying to get in on elk. And there is no real downtime in September. And then you hunt till the last legal light. And then you're hiking all the way back or you're camping right where you're at. So generally speaking, I would say I average 15 miles a day. And I don't know how much elevation. I haven't looked at that stat. But last year, the the most I hiked in a single day was 22 miles. The least I would say would be five or six. And that's just because elk don't live by the road for the most part. They they, they, <laughs> they don't make it easy for you. They don't have a drive up window. They sure don't. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's interesting to hear. And, and one of the things I saw going through your site, I mean, I do a little consulting work with Stairmaster and 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 Nautilus. They're owned by the by the same company. I saw you using that that Stairmaster hit mill, hit mill X, I think it was. What do you what do you like about that? You know, and and have you what other type of like equipment are you are you using because i don't know about you but sometimes as a trainer or coach i'll cycle through like a favorite piece of equipment for a while just to you know you know everything sometimes everything looks like a nail and i'll just you know use the same hammer but you know just kind of you know how'd you get turned on to the hit mill and and what other types of equipment are you, you digging right now definitely well i'm pretty simple i like the basic barbell kettlebell your body weight so i just recently got exposed to the hit mill x which is a funny piece to find inside a CrossFit gym. 
but uh, with my recent experience with it, it's a game changer. I wish they were um, something that every hunter could have in their garage because then you would be out of excuses. Uh, for those that don't know about it, it's set at an incline and it's you power the belt and it's an unbelievable piece of equipment as far as just training the exact muscles you need for hunting Um, you can farmer walk up it which is hard to imagine but it's set up to where you can hold weight in your hands wear a backpack if you want and hike uphill and you control the resistance and you can crank that down to where there is no walking you got to sled drive it and for guys like me who live where we get a lot of snow my prowlers and my sleds collect dust in the winter because we have snow and ice and the weather's terrible this is a game changer for me and i don't have turf in my gym anymore we took that out years ago and the reason why is because i have very sweaty people who fall on the turf Mm. with their shirt off and our turf just became disgusting and i was tired of having to shampoo it all the time so i just took turf out but we used to do plate pushes on the turf this we can now do all those things 365 indoor so, yeah, it's a game changer. It's pretty well built. We're still demoing for a few more weeks, and I'm having my athletes just – I'm putting them through the paces. It's definitely going to be a machine that we that stays at our gym, and, and I'm not a huge fan of machines. So when a machine catches my eye, I think it's pretty special. No, I'm kind of the same way. You know, yeah, I like the way you said that, you know, of, of natural stuff. And, you know, one thing I do like is I do like, you know, machine strength training for when folks get a little bit older because, you know, picking up the barbell, kettlebell can be a little intimidating. But to, to, to kind of, you know, getting ready to wrap up here, how would somebody, like if I want to learn how to bow hunt, what's going to be the best way? I've looked up, there are one or two archery clubs here in San Diego. And, you know, I, I assume that'd be a first start to learn actually how to shoot a bow properly. But if, our, if somebody like me were interested in learning how to do some hunting, and I don't know anybody in my immediate circle of friends who, who does it. Is there a way, is there some kind of association or something, or do you have any reference resources on elk shape that might help somebody, you know, learn, learn about this? So, yeah, I think, um, I'm going to speak to archery cause that's what I know. Uh, for a guy like you, I would go down to find a local archery shop. There's gotta be one nearby you before you develop any bad habits, like a fitness trainer and you get your client who's already developed bad habits. It's very tough to to unwire and rewire and hardwire good movement. So go in there, say, I'm investing yourself and hire them to, for a lesson or two at the very least before you pull a bow back. Have them measure you and get you sized right and then have them go over the basic fundamental things you need to look for as far as posture, how to execute a shot, what you're looking for, which you know you need to know if you're left eye or right eye dominant. It does matter. And just have some instruction, and then go run with it. Get some reps and try to build your proficiency with uh, the weapon, if you will. Uh, as far as researching, hunting, and things like that, I think every state out west, and, and really all states have hunting opportunity that you want to go into your local fish and game or DNR or Parks and Rec website of your state and find and read the rules and understand the bylaws. Uh, every state has their own rules. I hunt many states, so I have like a, a minor in hunting laws and regulations when it comes to each state. And it's important as an ethical hunter to know those laws because they do differ from state to state. In your state, California, you have opportunity, like you mentioned earlier, for probably an abundant, if not feral, population of hogs that need help being managed for crop and things like that, the damage that they do. And 
who wouldn't want their own bacon, organic bacon? <laughs> uh, you have uh, black-tailed deer, you have mule deer, you have pronghorn, you have a certain species of elk that uh, no other state has. You have overpopulation of black bear, and people have a hierarchy of animals that they kind of give a shit about. Like, and this is talked about a lot in hunting podcasts. But like, Pete, if I killed an ant, would you be offended? No. If I if I killed a fish, would you be offended? No. If I killed a deer for the dinner table, would you be offended? Probably not. And if I just went up the hierarchy and got into predators, I'm like, if I killed a bear, things get weird. People are like, no, why would you kill a bear? What are the bears like from Disney? They're, they, they talk. They have beautiful <laughs> eyes. You know? But bears eat deer calves in the, in the spring. It's just a fact. And the bears are exploding there in California. And California's got some laws that have taken in place. Like you cannot hunt cougars. You guys have cougars right there in your county. And, and you mean you mean the animal, not the uh, women over thirty five, right? <laughs> I mean, I think cougar hunting is all. I think cougar hunting that kind of cougar hunting is fair game anywhere for guys that are single. But Touché. I just want to call. <laughs> we'll call bit. them mountain lions for certain, but you can't. <laughs> you can't even own a mountain lion carcass or piece of fur in California. Very strict laws on on mountain lions, and yet you guys have you're overpopulated and you don't have hunting for them. And so what ends up happening is money gets wasted. The state actually has to hire professional trappers or hunters to go and kill these animals and they actually spend money on help managing their population when hunters are eager to spend money and put that money in the budget to go get those but anyways i digress so you have a lot of bears and things like that you're you're loaded up in fact i've hunted the trinity alps up there in northern california some of the most unbelievable country i've ever been in i got a blacktail out of there it was delicious uh and i saw the reason why i bring this up is i saw in just three days, I think I saw almost 30 different bears, uh, mm. which is just insane. So there's a lot of bears per square mile in California that they need some help managing, in my opinion. But uh, I would just try to find a local mentor at the archery shop, maybe read some hunting forums on where to get started. And you just have a lot of research to do. But definitely don't get paralysis by analysis. Just go out there and cut your teeth. Get yourself your hunter safety card and just go try. And, and it's a steep learning curve. But it's an, a, a tremendous pursuit that will probably change the way you are and the way you think. Well, and I've heard I've heard folks talk about it, and it is something that that I would definitely I would like to have the ability to to do more of. So I really appreciate that insight. Now, one little thing is is I'm somewhat I wouldn't say I'm into it, or I'm always interested in the stories that that people might have seen of uh, interesting of cryptozoology. You know, given the fact that you've, you've been in, in eastern Washington, you've done a lot of hunting in that area and in the uh, upper, you know, the, the upper regions there. Have you ever seen anything unusual or, or kind of really that just kind of made you go, what the heck did I just see when you've been out in the woods? Wow. I mean, I'd have to stop and really pause. I Every time I go out, I feel like I learn something new about myself or I learn something about, you know, ecology, biology, the land, mother nature. One thing I know for certain is that uh, mother nature doesn't give a shit about you or about anything. She is evil. <laughs> She's just doing her thing. And so being prepared to withstand the elements is really important part of hunting, having the right gear, having the right equipment, being able to not only survive, but thrive in tumultuous country and weather. And then as far as seeing things, I've seen amazing things. Uh, I've seen I have seen mountain lions face-to-face in the mountains. Uh, I've come around corners head-on with bears. I've seen 
in one basin in Wyoming, in one small basin, I had, I could have taken a video of this, but I didn't have anything with me. But in the same frame, I could have got a sow grizzly with two cubs digging up like rock chucks or squirrels out of the ground. In the same frame, I had a Rocky Mountain sheep feeding in the same grass. And then in the same frame, I had a bull elk bugling his head off with all his harem of cows. All in the same frame. I don't know. People would go to Yellowstone just to see that. And, and I was up there in the mountains and just enjoying that view of the same frame. I've seen double-digit wolves face-to-face. Uh, I've seen a wolf running down a trail with a calf leg in its mouth from its kill. Uh, I've seen some amazing things that I would never see in town. And uh, most importantly, when I'm hunting, I don't have a Wi-Fi connection. And to me, that really is something that people don't get enough of. And it really helps reset my mind and my spirit. That, that's cool, man. It's it's really cool to hear, hear you talk about that, especially you know, as we started out, I really, I hunt, the hunting culture is, is just not something I've ever been exposed to. And and so this is a really in, insightful conversation. And I mean that be, because it really, and hopefully for listeners, they understand that not all hunters are out there. Just, they're not masochists trying to, trying to hurt animals. You know, you can really hear that you really care about that. So that, that's pretty cool. Now your podcast, what do you, what do you cover with, with your podcast? And, and your podcast is elk shaped, correct? Yep. So I try to interview people that are lesser known, blue collar hunters like myself that just are passionate about hunting and hunting elk and the tactics involved and the fitness involved, the mindset. And we get into some personal development as well as how to manage your finances. And and we talk about leadership, entrepreneurship, things like that, that kind of get me excited. Those are kind of my passions. So we try to bring all that into a podcast and educate, inspire, and, and that's what we're looking for when we sit down with our guests. And uh, I love it, man. It's just the opportunity to get to know people really well. Cool. Exactly. Just like this. And with mindset, what's your, you know, what's been like a big impact on you? Has it been a person? Has it been a book? You know, in terms of just, in terms of how you approach your mindset? Because it sounds like you're really dialed in. I definitely am not really dialed in. I try to be. Uh, I definitely am cursed with a blessing and curse to just a strong work ethic. I'm very motivated. There's no day that I squander. I have a lot of things, a lot of irons in the fire that I'm pursuing, and I just want to be the best version of myself. And I found that through hunting and fitness, I can kind of be that. Both are different ways of life, and both kind of have a symbiotic relationship that challenge me and find me looking for ways to improve in different areas. And consistency and discipline has always been the backbone for any pursuit. And, and fitness is no different. Like you said earlier, there's no magic bullet. It's just about doing the basics really well and being consistent. And I find that hunting is the same thing. And, and so, yeah, I'm excited to talk about all these things, as you can tell, because they're just what I'm passionate about. Well, that's awesome, Dan. Hey, uh, the name of your website is what, Elkshape? Yeah, Elkshape.com. And the podcast is, uh, what's that called, and where can people find that? It's on anywhere where you would find a podcast, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher. It's Elkshape. Hey, man, I appreciate your time, dude, and I uh, look forward to I want to cut, touch base with you uh, probably before you get into this hunting season and talk about, you know, let you talk about kind of your physical prep and, and your conditioning for that. Is that cool? That would be awesome, Pete. Hey, man, pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, likewise.